Well, good evening, everyone. As we start, I'd like to share with you a sort of an interesting story that may have happened for you as well when you decided to come here tonight and hear about feeling because it's somewhat of a Western phenomenon. Uh, I was asked to give this talk about two months ago, two and a half months ago, and my first reaction, and I told the person who invited me, was to say, oh, yes, I'd love to talk about feeling because feelings were big in my family. I mean, it just there was a lot of that, especially on the female side. And um, so I, then I found out it's actually about Vedna, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it's a different kind of feeling. It is not emotion. It's a sensation that actually precedes emotion. So I have had a really very rich journey over the last two and a half or so months in really knowing what I'm going to be talking about tonight and experiencing it for myself. So I share it with you on a very new, fresh basis, quite honestly, and one that I had heard a lot about, like, where does this, where do you feel this in your body? And this all was very vague and fuzzy to me until, as I said, I was fortunate enough to be asked to give this talk. So if you came here to hear about emotions, what we're really going to be talking about is something that precedes emotions. And it's a very, very wonderful teaching and also one that can be very useful in your everyday life. One of the things that brought me to this practice was actually um, not the formal practice so much as the realization that the formal practice on the cushion is only one element and then the informal practice is everything else. And so really in practice, we're always practicing. And so just that knowledge of, of that there's, there's really no escape hatch, really, if you become a more serious student, is, uh, was very, very appealing to me from the beginning. And Vedna, the sensation of feeling, um, is, is a very fine place to study, I found, in practice in the last, as I said, brief time. So another thing that I would get kind of excited and scared about was when somebody would pick up one of the pseudo books, you know, and it's sort of heavy and ponderous, and I think, oh boy, you know, what's going to happen here? But the suttas are a very interesting place to start looking at what Vedna is. And I'll just read a portion, and I assure you there will also then be some very personal aspects of it that I have experienced in my practice. And I'm hoping that we'll also have an opportunity this evening for you to experience more elements of Vedna and then give you some Vedna venues to look for, to think about, and hopefully learn from. The foundations of mindfulness that we're studying for these four weeks, um, Vedna is described this way when the Buddha was asked. By the way, the bhikkhus are the students, or the, the monks in the case of the Buddha, and in our case we could call them the yogis, the meditators, if we want to make it a more personal thing to ourselves. And how bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating feeling as feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, he understands, I feel a painful feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And he goes on from there. Very often in, with the suttas, you'll find that there's a lot of repetition because this was, in fact, an oral tradition that went on actually for many centuries before any of this was written down. So you'll, you'll get this repetition, but there's, there was a good reason for it originally. So what you'll notice, first of all, is that there's just bare noting. You feel that there's a sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, unple which is known as neutral. So there's no varnishing of it. There's no additional embroidering of it. It's just a feeling, a sensation. And it can be a physical sensation. As I was telling you with, that often in, in past meditation times, we would talk about where do you feel this in your body. That can often make it a, a, a more real thing to you and keep you from going down to the embroidery path and the story train and the narrative and all the things that go from there. So then, and there's more, much more and more repetition there, but notice the first thing, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So then the Buddha 
actually this isn't the Buddha, this was a nun. And uh, she was apparently a very highly evolved um, practitioner. And she was asked, lady, what underlying tendency underlies pleasant feeling? Once again, remember, it's a, it's a physical thing. It's not an emotion, because it's an important thing to realize here. What underlying tendency underlines painful feeling? What underlying tendency underlies neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Friend, the underlying tendency to lust underlies pleasant feeling. We could also call this leaning into or craving or clinging, which I, many of you who have been here for a while, we know what that is, right? We've, we've talked about it. So that's what can happen with something that's pleasant. We get into it, we like it, we want more of it. Um, the underlying tendency to, a, excuse me, the underlying tendency to aversion underlies painful feeling. So painful, we don't like it, we don't want any more of it, get it away from me. Does the underlying tendency to ignorance underlie all neither painful nor pleasant feeling? So there's a certain numbing or just nothing's really happening. There's no juice when it's neither a pleasant or unpleasant sensation. We're just sort of living our lives. So that can often feel sort of bland, sort of blah. And many people at this point, including I have been guilty of this, I have to admit, especially with my husband occasionally, let's mix it up a little bit, you know, make this a little more interesting, you know, versus just being sort of a bland place. So that's, um, those are some of the two of the most important beginning teachings, pleasant, unpleasant, uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and then the concept that out of all three of these, something comes, the clinging, the craving, the aversion for unpleasant, and sort of a, almost a numb or just nothing's happening, no, no excitement. So then the Buddha was asked, um, um, and this is once again a direct sutta, what are the origin of feelings? What is their cessation and the way leading to their cessation? What is the gratification in feelings? What is the danger in feelings? And what is the escape from them? So the escape. There are, Ananda, three kinds of feelings, pleasant, painful, and neutral. Ananda was a student of the Buddhas. Through the origin of sense impression, there is origin of feelings. Through the cessation of sense impression, there is cessation of feelings. It is the noble eightfold path that is the way leading to the cessation of feelings, namely right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So the Eightfold Path can be a key place in having a cessation of these feelings. The thing to realize in all of this is, since life is changing all of the time, we can get into a lot of suffering, can we not, when we're either craving, in aversion, you know, or just feeling this blah feeling that we sometimes have, reference to them. That can be sort of made into Buddhism light, and a very nice uh, uh, description of this is in the issue at hand, which is a collection of Gil Fransdale, our teacher's teachings. And he talked about the recognition of the feeling, the naming of the feeling, the acceptance that you are having a feeling, and then the investigation. And I'd like to give you an example of something that happened to me literally Monday of this week. A lot of feeling involved here because a special friend of ours, whom we've known for 25 years in my husband's case, 15 years of mine, uh, is dying and uh, has also decided to more than likely take his life. And, uh, and so this would pro- very probably be the last visit that we're going to have with him. And um, he lives in Southern California. And I knew it was almost time for me to go to bed. I was going to be leaving the next morning very early, so it would probably be the last visit. So you can imagine the charge of feeling or emotion that was going on here for me. And as women do, all of a sudden, just started crying. And he said to me, stop crying. And of course, that was really difficult because here's a special friend telling me, not to have these feelings. And I tried to stop crying and 
couldn't stop. And so then I brushed them away. And he said something very, very interesting. And he said, you know, it's a lung disease that he has. And he said, when people I really care about cry, I have a tendency to get even more physical discomfort in terms of this lung problem that I have. So just the knowledge of that was an amazingly important realization that for me, I was serving myself and hopefully he was feeling that this was something that was appropriate, that, that was good, that was a connection that he knew that I cared about him. But in fact, there was a real problem with this feeling that I was expressing. And so what I was able to do, and it wasn't right away, because the first thing I did was just shut down and got very quiet. And that went on for about an hour until I decided it's time to go to bed now because I need to get up early in the morning and drive back to San Francisco. And um, so I realized that there was the best thing I could do was just give him a hug and say good night. Not say goodbye, just say good night. I thought that would be somewhat of, of something that would be somewhat useful and tell him that I loved him. That's exactly what I did. And um, it, was a, it was a nice parting. And then I realized when I went back to the room that I was really kind of angry with him for shutting off this feeling that I was having. You know. But the other thing that came of that as I unwound the whole thing in terms of Vedna was just recognizing, number one, that I had that feeling, the feeling of, gee, he's shutting me out of his life, this is terrible, you know, and having this whole storyline connected to it. And the naming that came to it, more than anything else, was um, rejection or isolation. And what I realized, because the next last step, as I mentioned to you earlier, is, is investigation. When I investigated the feeling, I realized that it was almost a mirror for when I was a little kid, lived in Chicago, and I would go to take my piano lessons downtown to the Loop. And um, my mother would accompany me, and I always wanted to have these little one-cent chocolate candy bars, Hershey bars. And sometimes she would let me have them, sometimes she wouldn't let me have them. But if I couldn't get you know, her to buy me these things, I would start crying. And she'd say, stop crying. People are looking at you. You don't want people. So it just it was almost a mirroring of that feeling that I had with him in terms of stop crying. And there was a, just a relief in the whole thing. And uh, I subsequently just I feel much different and much freed from the kinds of very difficult emotions that were going on at that point. But it came from unwinding them and bringing them back to investigating what was really happening and knowing certainly that the present day was creating something as well and a stimulus for this to happen, but also that it had a, a background to it that was very powerful. In all of this, uh, one of my favorite aspects of, of emotions and feeling, more specifically feeling, is the concept of the arrow. And this comes straight from uh, mindfulness of emotions in the issue at hand. The Buddha once asked a student, if a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? The student replied, it is. The Buddha then asked, if the person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? The student replied again, it is. The Buddha then explained, in life, we cannot always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first the second arrow is optional. So in terms of the story I just told you with this friend, and it's a deeply personal story, but it was so meaningful to me that I thought it was something that would be nice to share. There was definitely the second arrow of, that I was putting on it, that what's wrong with me, what's wrong with him, we're, you know, why aren't we connecting it this probably last time we ever really will, and all these things that were kind of churning around and I was creating a whole story around that. And in our practice, it's um, not uncommon for that to happen, that uh, 
on the cushion, for instance. You know, I have a very quick mind. I don't know how many of you do, but we can really get going in manufacturing whole aspects of things and whole stories around a look that somebody might give you or something that might happen. But as the Buddha has said, if we can unwind it and bring it back to the original sensation, unpleasant. David's told me, you know, stop crying. That's unpleasant. And not move on and on and on. There is a possibility for being free and for not either creating aversion, like getting very angry at this person for doing this to me, or feeling this clinging of, I will cry because that's what I do, and that's something, that's me, and he's not going to tell me this. But just the knowledge that when you're really, you know, in a, in a place with other human beings, they, um, there's, there's something else that's happening there that we need to honor and have a sense of, of, um, of appreciation for and compassion for. So this is just uh, one of many things along this line that's happened to me. Uh, I seem to be a very uh, Vedna Sipassana for me. And when I'm on the cushion, I have a very quick mind. And in a retreat setting, I've been to probably six or seven retreats, there's really the time to, to experience some of this really close sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, going into the kitchen as Christopher Titmus, one of our teachers, once said, ah, the dining room, the mosquito breeding ground of all judgment. Because, you know, you go to the dining room, I don't know how many of you have been on retreat or been in any kind of a group setting, and, boy, look at that fat person over there eating all that food, you know, or look at that skinny person, they're not eating enough, or why do they make this kind of food? They ought to know that it's going to make us all gassy, or, you know, whatever it happens to be, that we can just start spinning with some kind of thing or another that's... Um, that really, at its, at its heart, just why can't we just experience the meal and experience you know, what's happening here in terms of the sensations of, of taste and, and sound and smell and all the other the sense doors that we have to experience our sensations. And there are six. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts. And that's, as I told you earlier, one of the richest ones for me. So these are also termed as our sense doors, the six sense doors. And the Buddha, I understand, said we have to be very careful about guarding our sense doors. This is not to not perceive or sense life, or we wouldn't even be human, but it's to guard them and realize where they could be heading us. Where, where are we going with this? And uh, I know a lot of people think, um, gee, it must be great to have a spouse that you meditate with. It's, it just must be wonderful because, you know, you're not alone and you both really believe in the practice and I'm sure your home life is just as placid as can be and this is just, uh, you know, sure every moment is mindful and, you know, you're not lonely or this or that, whatever. Anyway, you must have a spouse. But anyway, <laughs> there's all these things that people think in terms of, of, you know, might think anyway. I'm just assuming that, I have to admit. But I, I have had people tell me this. Gee, you both meditate, you know, Jeff's done it for 25 years and you've done it for eight years or whatever it is. It just must be terrific. But in a retreat, it is incredible what can happen for me of noting, okay, did he, did he appear to the sitting? Did he not appear to the sitting? Um, and one of the first retreats I ever went to, he was sitting behind me. And um, I think directly behind me. And... I noticed, pretty obvious, right? You walk into the room, walk out of the room, you do your walking, and you're sitting, and you're walking, and you're sitting. And I noticed he wasn't there. And I thought, well, what is this? You know, what, he's not there? Why isn't he there? Why isn't he being a good meditator? He's been doing this for 25, just going off on a whole thing with my own self. And that went on. We're talking about 6.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night, approximately 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking, 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking. Then you may have a job for an hour or so and two hours lunch. That's the longest break, perhaps. This was up at Spirit Rock. And I was just beside myself with, with what this meant. Oh, we'll pr probably stop meditating. He'll want to stop this when this is over and this is really a good retreat for me. And just all this spinning along. And um, so... When the retreat was over, I didn't, then I did notice he was there. I forget at what point of the day, but much later in that day. And so when we left, I said, 
you know, where were you during, you know, from so-and-so to so-and-so on Tuesday or whatever day it was? And he said, well, my back was hurting and I was sitting in the back of the room. So the kinds of things that we can put ourselves into and the kinds of foment that we can put ourselves into in terms of just what could be bare noting of, and in this case it might have just been, hmm, sensing might have been like aloneness or disappointment or just, just some little, little aversion, some little kind of a unpleasantness here. But instead, you know, I went on this entire thought train. In another Spirit Rock retreat, more recently, in fact, right after 9-11, about four months after 9-11, I uh, went to the New Year's retreat. This was about halfway through the retreat. It was a seven or eight day retreat. And um, I noticed Jack Cornfield sitting in the back of the room. And he was sitting um, against the wall. I don't remember if he had a cushion or not, but he was sort of leaning against the wall. And he had a look on his face that for all, I don't know, if maybe all of you don't know who he is, but he's one of the key teachers, one of the main teachers up at Spirit Rock and has written a number of books and is a long time Vipassana student and teacher. And he had this very worried, pained look that I had projected onto his face. And I was sure that the reason he was here was because some awful attack had happened. As I said, this was about four months after 9-11, and you know how much the news is kind of embroidering all this at this point. And I was sure he was going to announce to us some awful, awful thing. And the next session was meta, and thank God for that, because the whole loving kindness and, you know, may I be safe, may I be free from suffering, you know, all the kinds of things that we do in our meta um, uh, practice, it was very difficult for me, but I was able to do it. Well, the end of it came, he left the room, and I don't even know when he exactly left, but there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. But my mind had really, it's called papancha, proliferation of thoughts. One thought creates another and another, and then you know that this face is very troubled and very worried, and for all I know, he was, you know, in Nirvana, <laughs> totally blissed out. I don't really know what he was really thinking or what he was like, but I doubt very much that he was in a very negative or awful place um, when I you know, look back at it. So all of these ways in which we can create suffering and pushing things away or clinging to them, just numbing out. And I think the cushion is one very good place to get this because there's kind of no place to escape to and no place to really hide, or not as easy anyway, shall we say, because it's always there and you're always there. Um, what I'd like to do is to have us all just see if we can have a way of um, experiencing this together. And so if we could all close our eyes, sit in a comfortable posture, but close your eyes. And breathe three or four breaths. Deep breaths that just blow out as much of the tension or any irritation or feelings of of non-rest that you may have. And then think of either an incident or right now, if there's something as immediate as a pain that you might have right now, a a physical pain in a knee or your back or whatever, or it could be an incident, something that's happened perhaps in the recent past, where you can go back to that time and that place And there was an issue here. Something happened that was very powerful, either in a clinging or an aversion, where you really had this feeling of pleasant or unpleasant. We'll stick with those two. And when you seek deeper, 
or investigate, you notice that either the pleasant was not so pleasant or the unpleasant was really a total fabrication or in some way was so off that that you could unwind it at this point. And when you think of it, see if you can find the seed of the investigation that would bring you back to a place of calm, resolution, or understanding. that neutralizes it. Might be a long time ago. Might be 10 minutes ago. There's usually a story, a story connected to the Vedna, the bare sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and we go off and move into a story. And sometimes when you remember what the story is, you can wind it back out and unravel. perhaps a second arrow, your reaction to a stimulus. Now you may open your eyes. And since I've given you three or four stories, it would be really nice if some of you are willing to if you are willing to share something that relates to this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the Vedna principle. Anybody willing to do that? Thank you. Yes. Moving mm-hmm. in. So kind of a rejection too, is that part of it? Or potential rejection. Potential. I think that sounds like anxiousness and yeah. Sounds very and what happened when it all broke? The stories were gone. What was there a relief or anything that there was a relief? Yeah. Was there suffering in the interim period? <laughs> Nothing too major, but there's def- major. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's elements. Compulsion to go like to go back to what I've written again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Replaying it. What might they have taken offense to, or what might? So, you know, oh, I, could, I can be right there with what you're talking about. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that. Now, there, there, the thing that I've noted, as I said, since I've been practicing this over the last couple of months, is I don't catch it right at the beginning of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I catch it at the story time, and that's very helpful because then I, I'm thinking that what's going to happen is that if I catch it there and it just doesn't go into more and more and more stories, that it will kind of wheel itself back so that I will be able to um, perceive it sooner and sooner and sooner. So that's what, uh, what I think will happen. I, I really do. And the more you practice with it, the more I think the possibility for that to happen is. And, of course, the main thing is the less suffering for self and others. Because uh, sometimes, you know, if you're living in a relationship with someone, 
there's also suffering that you're creating for them with whatever anxiety of the job problems. You know, I have an extremely stressful and you know very um, there's a lot of demands in me with uh, for me on me, excuse me, in fundraising because you know this is a time of less money and you know the college really needs the money and so there's a lot of you know pressure and so bringing that into the house, you know, all those kinds of sensations and feelings can can really. But is it clear that the sensation is just this? This whole initial sense relationship, and then it moves to emotions later. So the storyline, you already probably have emotions going, but there's still value in that. Don't I would not, you know, in any way discount that because just like this thing that happened with David, I know that four, you know, four or five years ago, I would not have caught that. I would have just been very upset and felt for a much longer time. It was helpful for him to say what he said to me because it helped me to understand why crying was going to be so uncomfortable for him, literally physically, because of his illness. But um, I think you know, the time of recognition comes closer and closer. Thank you very much. Anybody else have one? It's willing to... Oh, please. It was very helpful, and I think the practice itself was helpful enough. I probably would have talked more. I probably would have asked him more about it because we know each other so well. You know, like, are you serious? The first thing I said, I actually asked him, are you serious that you don't want me to cry? Because I thought maybe it was, oh, Cheryl, don't cry. I thought maybe it was like that. And he said, no, I'm very serious. And then he told me. So it was very helpful to have that information, very helpful. But it wasn't until I really took it further and saw kind of what was happening inside of myself that I was really able to parse it out a little more, you know, to be a response to him instead of a reaction. I once um, heard that there's a real differentiation between to respond to things that happen to you, sensations, whatever they are, experiences, or react. Response takes into account the other person and takes into account the full situation, whereas reaction often has lots of ego and I-ness involved in it. They're rejecting me, you know. Ah, you know, he. Our last experience is going to be so unpleasant, you know. And react versus respond to the circumstance. Um, very often in a in a Vedna situation, there will be a lot of eyeing and mying and me, you know, me in it. You know, this person is making me upset. I'm feeling terrible about this. I'm, you know, my pain, my knee, my, whatever it happens to be. So all that identification just really compounds, usually will compound the situation that's going on. So it was helpful, I would say that for sure. Um, But the practice, I think, would make it so that I would be more philosophical about it anyway. Seven or eight years ago, I really wouldn't. I would have just said, oh, this is just awful, and probably kept that for a very, very long time. So I'm very happy that the time it took was much collapsed because it meant much less suffering for both of us. Thank you. Any other um, events or things that anybody else is willing to talk about? Or any other questions? I'd be glad to... Yes? If instead of focusing on yourself, you maybe reached out to the other person in that process of unlearning, that's what I actually ended up doing in that... And that really, um, very quickly, took me into a place of softening the need to hang on to that chain mm-hmm. of, you know, Yeah, the, the proliferation of thought, thought, more and more thoughts. Yes. And going into that, you know, drilling down there. And I, I don't know, that just works for me. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just really creates a softening in my body that I was really being relaxed. 
So it's kind of like, as I said, that whole difference between response and reaction, that responding really takes into account the whole circumstance, the other person and what they really need. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't think I would have either gone back, been that taken aback if he wasn't such a special person in my life and feeling that this was just going to be a very inauthentic last time together. It just, you know, really bothered me because, but I was, you're right. In this case, I think I was doing that. I was not taking into account what was really needed in the circumstance. So that's, you know, and it would have created a lot of suffering if I had kept going down that trail. I just know it. My husband told me he stayed one more day and he told me that, you know, David really mentioned to him that he was glad that, you know, it had gone the way it had gone. So anybody else have something to? Yes. Mm-hmm. This is where I used to get stuck, and it's something I still haven't practiced with that much. As I told you originally, when I know I was going to be talking about some feeling, you know, I thought, oh boy, this is this is some place where I can really, <laughs> I can really get into it. Until I knew that it was a much more refined concept that we were going to be teaching, that we we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but I have also experienced times when this guiding. Um, suggestion or instruction is done, like mindfulness of the body and a specific sensation of pain, where it will literally, it almost seems to just evaporate when I notice it. It's stabbing or very hot or just very, very uncomfortable or maybe prickly sensations of falling asleep, you know, the, the limb falling asleep or something, and thinking, boy, I wonder, you know, maybe I'll oh, have a blood clot, you know, all this craziness that you get. It. You know, I mean, this is craziness, but I have a very fast mind. And so I confess to you that when I tell you these things, these are literally things that happen to me. I can really move along with, with thoughts. And so this practice is very, very dear to me um, to, to have the ability to, to work with these things. But often it'll just, it does just somewhat evaporate or just, you know, go away. One of, one of very interesting experiences I've had in, in meditation, I've actually occasionally had thoughts almost be like cartoon thought bubbles and they just kind of pop away and just one by one they just go away and that hasn't happened very often but it has happened a few times where they literally just dissolve into the nothingness from which they came in the first place so that the pain you know as soon as you get up in 15 seconds you're no longer ordinarily is there really a problem here but what you notice is how things change so clinging to them or having an aversion to them really adds to the suffering that we have. So that's what's so important about these kinds of um, exercises or practices that we have is to really get into it. And as I said, originally it, it didn't have as much meaning to me as it has in these last few months of working with it and working with it off the cushion. As I said in the Vedna venues. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. So to the point of, it was a very simple example, but you know, most of my leg fell asleep. And uh-huh. So that's what I focused on. Oh, just now? Oh, in our... well, during the exercise. Oh, good. Uh-huh. And what I learned out of the lesson was uh, two things was how much projection I put into that, and perhaps my naming is an error because I, I named it as pain. Well, the feeling, the sensation that was actually happening wasn't pain. I was projecting ahead into the future of what it might happen, what it might fall yeah, so it wasn't pain itself. It was more like aversion and like just really, were you making more and more out of it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, interesting. So you refined the thought, the, the feeling that was, was happening, something. Well, and in the process, I realized, well, actually, it was kind of a new feeling. But thinking ahead, making the story work. Yes, the story train is really, it can be very useful. To, to see that train take off, you know, and pretty soon, you know, you're in Tahiti, you know, with this uh, phantom lover or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> you can just really keep going. Um, well, my story was in the boy fly, it was nerve damage. So. <laughs> 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 no. 
I have sort of full calves and, and you know legs, so mine would be blood clot. You know, that, that's where I kind of go with it. But good grief, you know, it's it's amazing. Uh, remember the Woody Allen episode where he was um, uh, he had to get on the phone with the doctor or something, and there was some I don't know some diagnosis. I forget what it was, but he just it was a perfect rendition, Hollywood rendition of this diagnosis he got about his health or something. So it's really very very. Interesting to watch that and see where the suffering's coming from, where the aversion, where the clinging. Because there's also good. Don't don't ever forget that one, because that has just as much of an allure, but also just as much potential suffering. Because when it goes away, the good feeling, or whatever, there's suffering in that as well. So, as um, oh, this was a really interesting teaching. Um, uh, just a moment here. Ah, pleasant, pleasant feeling is pleasant when it persists and painful when it changes. So as I said, you know, oh, it's pleasant. This is wonderful. But when it changes, it changes into obviously painful. Painful feeling is painful when it persists. doesn't change, right? And pleasant when it changes. So it's like the converse, you know. So no matter which way you go, this ever-changingness of sensations and of feelings, if we get married to them, not only are we whipsawed back and forth versus, you know, in a calm, centered place, but also there's plenty of suffering there. And then last, what is pleasant and what is painful in regard to, Excuse me, what is pleasant, what is painful in regard to neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings. Pleasant feeling is pleasant when it persists and painful when it changes. Painful is painful when it persists and pleasant when it changes. Neither painful nor unpleasant nor pleasant feeling is pleasant when there is knowledge of it and painful when there is no knowledge of it. So if we're like oblivious and we're just, you know, getting all carried away by something and it, it didn't have one way or the other, either pleasant or unpleasant, the ignorance or the obliviousness of it is also very, it can end up being painful going forward. So in either case, not being aware of it. And it's not to say we don't sense things fully. It's very important to sense things fully and to really you know, know what is happening for us and not to reject it or deny it. But, um, but we have a tendency to become ruled by it if we're not aware of where it's going, where it is right now, and how it is changing and, um, uh, and get too attached or too clinging about the pleasant ones or aversive about the unpleasant ones. So, Any other... Uh, thank you very much for talking about that because I think you really got down into yet another level of it, which is great. Anybody else have something you'd like to say about the exercise? Yes? Oh, good, please. <laughs> Just to... Wow. Right. Remember, she said she was going to start with pleasant, but I mean, this stuff, it's just, you can really, yeah, fascinating. That's fascinating. These things can happen. Yeah. Did you have something? Thank you.
because I can't really know everything about it anyway. But I was wondering what the place of morality is, like really thinking about something so that you know if you have to take an action or not, no action. I'm a nurse, so uh -huh. it's, it's sometimes like if somebody says, I'd rather die, I'm okay with that decision. And let somebody else make the decision and not you all. And yeah. that happens to me, and, and I am still involved in that story that I'm telling myself. I'm very angry about it. And uh, would, you, would you back away from the story at that point? Or, you know, it's going on in my head a lot. And uh, is, it, is there such a thing as morality involved when you're getting involved in the story? Sometimes there certainly may be. Um, are you saying that you have a sense that there was something immoral in what was done here? I, I felt that, but I, I, don't know very, I know very little about my thought life, and I've just started to come. So um, I can detach from some things if a person wants to, to die and they take too much medicine and they're really in that horrible state. Um, you know, I can live with that completely. But uh, in the case that I have, a family... Yeah, I think you would find that um, that repetition of thoughts often are things that need to be attended to in one way or another. That would be the main thing I would say. I couldn't, you know, I'm not going. I couldn't possibly really fully comment on this because I wouldn't feel appropriate in doing that. But I can say that things that seem to keep coming again and again, and if they are serious, and that does sound like a serious thing that happened, that I would, I would say you'd want to attend to that in some way. Yeah. And it's not just a story in the typical way we're saying here. Yes, it sounds more like something that, that you would need to attend to. That's, that's at least how it sounds to me. Yeah. Yes? Um, I'm, I don't know how to make this useful, but it feels as though we're, if we're studying their, their sensation, uh, we're getting a lot off into mindfulness of process, it seems, rather than mindfulness of dharmas because that's the, the process of having that raw sensation become amplified or entangled in the story mm -hmm. instead of just really keeping it, oh, here's an unpleasant sensation. Oh, here's a pleasant. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying I'm successful at that because that's very developed to be able to do it actually. Uh, sometimes one's lucky. I mean, tonight mm -hmm. I, I noticed when you said that that I had a, a, an unpleasant feeling in my stomach. Mm -hmm. And I just was, you know, I was successful in saying, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant, mm -hmm. unpleasant. Without. And then I noticed that a pleasant thought replaced it. Just suddenly I was thinking a pleasant thought and I could feel myself, you know, getting a little, mm, uh -huh. feeling a pleasant thought, thinking, oh, well, a, a pleasant thought. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, because processes are a, a, a different level of the, Yes, but there are six sense doors, and they are described in here. And it's you know sight, the you know sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, and thought. So yeah, you could you could you could get to that level, I suppose. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm. I I move toward the story before I use. Every now and then I can just stop with just that I am thinking now, but um, I don't know. Uh, I think. For most people, it takes a while because we're so used to being in that realm of these kinds of things going on and on and on and being allowed to go on and on and on that um, I find myself, at least for me, moving toward the story and finding the stop, the cessation point with the story and then kind of learning about it and pondering it and learning if there is something to learn about it. If it's repetitive, that's, as I said to me, that's an important thing to learn about. Um, and for me, you know, it's kind of, this, there are certain repetitive things that happen and sort of being rejected or not being, you know, feeling close or something, that, that's something that I can get into very quickly. But it is possible, I'm sure, that, you know, you could just stick with the bare noting and just thought, you know, pleasant, unpleasant. That's true. That is absolutely true. And I think that as you move along, that's probably exactly where it goes. At least that's what I read. I didn't read some of the other things because it gets very deep about jhanas and the concentrations and the types of very deep concentrations that will happen that replace some of this, you know, unproductive um, sensation.
So it goes into that in, in, the, uh, in the sutta. But I thought that was a bit much for tonight because we're being very introductory here, I think, for this, uh, this session, this series, rather. Any other questions or stories or interesting observations? Yes. Yes, that absolutely, it absolutely can. I'm sure of that. I just don't have that happen too often in my own personal practice, but I know that's something that where it can go, and it does happen sometimes for me. But often I'm I'm on another, you know, I go further than that. Well, if you can kind of um, diminish the eyeing and the mying, which is kind of what you're talking about here, and which I know Lewis is talking about as well, this is my thought, this is you know my emotion that he's stopping, this is my you know whatever it happens to be, my peace of mind or whatever it is, then all that identification, it also has a tendency to also puff up a self or a an identification with a self. So, and and that's where the suffering comes from, no doubt about it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, I would like to know if there's any. So for your case, you can uh, sense that's the what you're creating, and then you just uh, stop there. But uh, I'm not just a new student. I just want to know if there's any place or anything we can just make us more uh, aware, conscious, something to happen instead of going on, like just mm-hmm. turn off the chatterbox. Yes. It's still there. But the, is there any good solutions or because we are practicing? Uh, also, you mentioned that there's those kind of feelings, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or between. If so you just if you just identify them or mark them in just that one way of saying pleasant, unpleasant, or neither ple- uh, neutral, that can and you can stop there. That would be ideal. That would be an ideal thing to have happen, and it is possible, and I have done it. But I don't do it every time, and I don't. <clears throat> I think it's my responsibility to tell you where I am right now because I think there's a lot of other people in this room who are where I am right now, and I wouldn't want to in any way indicate that it's different. But it does happen for me, and it happens more now that I really understand more about what this really is. It's not just a concept anymore; it's really real to me now that I've been practicing <clears throat> with it more. Just period, not more, but just practicing with it. And it's not something, the only place I had heard this gone to before I did this uh, research and study <clears throat> and personal experience with it was the idea of feel where it is in your body. Just feel where, that's the main thing I ever heard about feelings and, and you know, the, the, the raw sensation of feeling. But I never quite got how this pleasant, unpleasant neutral could be so useful, you know, to, to kind of stop going to that next level of fabricating all kinds of clinging and suffering and other things with it. So I may be a slow learner, I don't know, but that is that is the fact for me and that's what I've that's how I've experienced the practice so far. And I'm very grateful and I think this has been a kind of a jump start to it to be involved with this. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to tell you my, you know, experience with it so far. Yes. I think I agree. I think that the beginning of the practice is really to acknowledge the raw states. The role, the role space of the sounds or sensations or feelings. Uh, the, the, the sec- the, I think the further steps to the practice is that you, you gain freedom yes. by not identifying with either a thought, just being a thought or a feeling, being a feeling of sensation or a sound. Uh, as, as you practice develop and becomes deeper, the basis of having noticed 
being knowledge, being aware of everything that's happening and not being not affecting you, then you become to gain freedom. Then you're not being thrown away from the center. So you stay in the center because you tend to know that sound is your sound, thought is your thought, sensation <laughs> is sensation, and none of this is ever you. Right. That whole self-identification, right? So That's where the suffering comes from. The more you just, I think, note it and identify it and see if you can, can stop it at that point before getting into a whole identification with it, and a whole, as he said, like an embroilment with it as being me, you know, my pain, my, you know, difficulty, whatever it happens to be. At this point, I'd just like to give you a few ideas of places that could be Vedna venues for you because uh, a couple of them came to my mind, and I've talked a little bit about it. But one of them is definitely a car. And the good thing I think about a car is, and I've been working on this one, a car is a place where... First of all, you know where you are. You, it has a chance, it's, a, it's a confined space, and there's an activity connected with it, and it's one that's somewhat, it is somewhat controllable, and it's just you, preferably when you're driving alone, I think. So you get in the car, and you just watch. Of course, you have to be driving, you know, and be careful in terms of your driving as you're doing this, but I, I've noted that they come really fast and furiously, the feelings of pleasant, when I, my, my uh, uh, commute is from Highway 92 in San Mateo to El Monte on Highway 280. And I can just tell you, boy, there's days when that road is just as clear as can be and I am as happy as a clam. You know, I'm just driving down 280, so happy. And then all of a sudden, er, things stop around Sand Hill and I'll get into kind of, a, of an aversion thing or, jeez, you know, I've got to get to work now or whatever it is. So somebody cuts you off. And it's always a BMW in my world, I'll tell you. It's like, what are these people in these BMWs anyway? These IPO people, you know, and just getting off, just rolling along with, and pardon me if you're a BMW owner, I'm just kind of telling you that it's always a BMW, right? So, so it's the, and then on goes the story from there. But I think a vehicle is a, has a real vet in the possibilities. Um, and the whole driving experience. As I said, don't get off on it too much because I think it could actually be safer to travel if you're consciously aware of the Vedna that's coming to you and versus trying to do something about somebody cutting you off. It's just, oh, in a hurry, you know, speed, you know, whatever, cut off, just quickly, just, just let it go and keep paying attention to your driving. But it is some place where it can happen a lot. And as it's a confined place, a confined space, I think it's, a, it's an opportunity. Another one is, um, as I said, on the cushion. Uh, I could just tell you that my husband and I, we, we, he's the manager of Saturdays, like the all days that we have here. And there's really very great value in sustained practice for an entire day. Very great value to that. So that if you come at 8.30 some days, and sometimes it starts at 9, this week it'll start at 9. But to go from 9 to 4.30 or from 8.30 to 5, whatever, um, and really have a sustained time that you give yourself and your practice to note these things, note the Vedna, note the you know, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral things as they come. And uh, I just know like Monday this place is packed, Sunday this place is packed, and on the all days, you know, it could, this, this would be almost packed about this many people. So it's a wonderful offering that we have here at the center is to spend a whole day, or if you can't do the whole day, do a half a day because the cushion can be a really wonderful place for practicing with your Vedna. And then when you get, to me, it would take quite a bit of evolution, but I have worked with it, certainly. Our close relationships are a real place to see our Vedna, a real place to see it. And... Um, uh, there's a real privilege in that to, to note. I have just started over the last three or four months just telling my husband, this is going nowhere, let's stop now when I feel that it's going to go into something that there will not be anything positive. I just know it. And he's gotten to realize, yep, 
that it's going to be one of those things, you know, that we just can get into a pattern back and forth and become very unpleasant. Um, but just to, just to note it and see it right then and there and as soon as possible to keep from eyeing and mying and just let it alone, just stop because it just plain isn't worth it very often times. But it can also be a place of, of, you know, either neutral that everything is just kind of cruising along or a place of, of great joy. But the real joy is when we're not in an attached place, as you know, because as the Buddha has said, you know, it comes from it's always changing. So this knowledge of, of this change and the reality and the, the um, acceptance for the fact that it's always changing. And so therefore getting attached to either circumstance is going to create a lot of suffering. So I really appreciate your engagement in this evening's uh, talk. And I'm hopeful that it was useful for you. And I'm grateful for the opportunity of working together on it. Thank you.